Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, a life and death crisis. They have no uh, safe place to go, so they create it for themselves in the tent encampments. Canada's housing advocate addresses the tent encampments popping up across the country, calling them indicative of a national crisis in need of a national response. Why are there so many of these tent communities? What does Ottawa and other levels of government need to do to respond? We'll hear from the advocate herself, Marie-José Hull. Also... We're, we're going to try to support them. They need an influx of money right away. Ontario's Premier says his government will help the city of Belleville, the community of just 55,000 dealing with dozens of overdoses in just a matter of days. What can the federal government do to help as well? The city's mayor is standing by. And... A $500 million saving. Is the Trudeau government doing enough to prove it's managing your money wisely? This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. Canada's housing advocate calls it a national crisis in need of national action. Tent cities and homeless encampments popping up across the country, which Marie-José Hull says needs to be addressed with urgency. Today, the housing advocate released a report that includes six calls to action, a plan to address what Uhl describes as the broken system of housing available to Canadians right now. Take a listen to the debate, the issue sparked in Parliament today. The Liberal-appointed housing advocate gave this government a failing grade today. She says homelessness encampments are a manifestation of how broken our housing and homeless system is. She describes it as life or death crisis. While this prime minister says he could have and should have done more to build housing, it shows how out of touch he is. So will the prime minister take this crisis seriously, follow the recommendations and ensure people have a safe place to call home? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, I very much welcome the interest and the efforts of the New Democratic Party to support us in everything that we're doing on delivering on housing. We recently signed housing accelerator agreements with Quebec, with Nunavut, with cities across the country to unlock over 500,000 new homes. We introduced a suite of new measures to unlock the construction of over 600,000 new apartments. We cracked down on short-term rentals to unlock up to 30,000 more apartments. We introduced just a mortgage charter. We're continuing to step up on measures to counter homelessness, which is something that far too many Canadians are experiencing during these difficult times. We'll keep being there for people. Well, with that, we're now joined by Canada's housing advocate, Marie-José Hull. Uh, Ms. Hull, good to see you face-to-face. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So I want to begin with that exchange that we heard in the House of Commons today. Uh, what did you make of the Prime Minister's response to, to the question being asked by the NDP leader? Well, that you know, the the federal housing or the the federal government has been responding to the housing issues by first of all creating the national housing strategy, uh, and contributing over eighty two billion dollars around the housing issues in Canada. That being said, you know, is it coming out fast enough? Is it is that money uh, targeted at the right places? 
um, housing as a human right is new for Canada. The, this, um, you know, was enshrined in domestic law in 2019 through the National Housing Strategy Act, which also created my position. And this is my first systemic review uh, on a housing issue, and they received the report today. So I don't expect a, a, a response and an answer today, but we have recommendations, and the big one uh, is calling for a national response plan on encampments that includes new resources, so not just carving out old resources or resources that already exist to address housing and homelessness issue, and to convene all levels of government at the table, including people with lived experience and indigenous governments, because if we're looking at the issue of homelessness and people ex um, you know, in encampments, if you go west of Ontario, the vast majority of people in encampments are Indigenous. So we need to bring Indigenous governments to the table. It needs to be a collaborative approach, and because what we're seeing right now is a patchwork of very different responses, and the municipalities are struggling very deeply. Some of them are taking uh, our human rights-based approach and are doing things well, but a lot of them are taking very punitive approaches, and so we're calling for a stop to encampments and for municipalities and all governments to really focus on solutions that first address the human rights violations of people in encampments, which is lack of access to things like water, sanitation, garbage pickup, health care, and treatment of their dignity, but also their, uh, you know, their violation of their human right to housing. Let me jump in there, because okay. you're, you're sharing a lot at once right okay. now for people at home. And you, you do say, getting back to the human rights, because you say encampments that we're seeing across the country right now, that is an effort by people to reclaim their human rights. How is their human rights currently not being met by the shelter system in place and the resources in place to help people experiencing homelessness? Well, when people are criminalized for poverty or for living in encampments or for being homeless, um, first of all, it is a violation of their right to, um, the human right to housing, but also the right to choose. So people are choosing to be in encampments because the other options that are made, uh, available to them are not working for them. And, you know, another human rights-based approach is to work directly and engage in a very meaningful way with people with lived experience because they are the ones who are going to be able to tell you why the solutions that are proposed to them are not working and why we've been failing at this uh, housing crisis for the last you know 30 years that it's been it's been accumulating it's it's been building so um, you know it's a unique opportunity and it's also one that treats people with dignity instead of a top-down approach that never works we need to work with people with lived experience let me jump in again because you you also lay out two things in, in your initial answer one the, the 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 way it's addressed through a human rights viewpoint is something you say is successful, punitive is unsuccessful. How do you describe a human rights perspective in addressing this issue? Well, the human rights perspective, first of all, is ensuring that everyone has the basic needs that are met. So people in encampments, uh, that they have access to water, sanitation, um, food, and like I said, health care. The second is to engage them in a very meaningful way um, 
to find solutions. So the, you know, this encampments uh, plan that we're calling for the federal government to put in place before August 31st of this year needs to include people with lived experience at the table. The other is punitive, which you say is negative, and to that, in the report, you are calling for the end of the forced evictions of encampment sites, which we have seen across the country. But to be fair, before a forced eviction happens, it's oftentimes preceded by local residents saying that they want the encampments gone. So when you say that approach is wrong, what do you say to local residents who are raising the concern and asking essentially for these evictions to take place? I understand that um, having, you know, seeing, having visible homelessness in, in your backyard is, makes people very uncomfortable. It, you know, it's not fun to see people freeze to death. It's not, it's not, it's not fun for anyone. And, and I really appreciate that the public humanizes the people in these experiences because this is not a family camping trip. You know, this is, these are people that are desperate and these are people that are deeply suffering and these are people that have been so incredibly failed on so many levels and for so many reasons. And to understand the root causes of this is, you know, just the fact that they have no uh, safe place to go. So they create it for themselves in the tent encampments um, that, um, you know, so if people are uncomfortable of, of seeing that and having it so close, they need to put pressure on governments to find real solutions. So not just out of sight, out of mind, or sequester people to shelters that have barriers for people because you're going to see encampments again. I'm looking at Edmonton that just spent millions of dollars to clear encampments and yet there's still encampments and those millions of dollars that have been used to re-traumatize people, brutalize people, destroy their items of survival, um, their, the items that make them who they are as human beings, you know, ID, pictures of loved ones, ashes of loved ones, um, that, you know, this money could have been used elsewhere, and yet that money now is, is, was used to cause just deeper harm to people. We need to build trust with people in encampments in order to get them to, to make different choices so that when good choices are put in front of them, that is the choice they will make. But if we continue to destroy their self-esteem and, and um, you know, treat them like they can't make good decisions or that they're not deserving of dignity or of, of you know, even a roof over their head. Um, they're not going to trust anyone who approaches them to, to help connect them to these resources. I only have 30 seconds, but I need to ask you, you know, you've now tabled this report, the first of its kind, as, mm -hmm. as far as you know. What will indicate to you that this government is listening to the concerns that you are raising right now? As you say, a national crisis in need of a national response. Well, it's, it's first of all, it's to convene that table and to have the right players at that table. We set a deadline for this response to be there. Uh, Minister Fraser has 120 days also to respond in writing to my report, so that's the first step. Um, and then we need to see immediate action and then we need to see prioritization of building housing so that people in encampments can be appropriately housed 
And then finally, the long term and, and their vision and the plan needs to address the root causes of encampment. So it's not just a supply issue, lack of housing supply or shelter beds. It really is addressing racism, colonialism, and poverty. So it needs to be a very robust long-term plan that is well-funded. That is, Jose. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. Belleville, Ontario is not a big city, but right now it is dealing with a big city problem. Located 190 kilometers east of Toronto, Belleville declared a state of emergency last week after 17 people overdosed in just 24 hours. That number has since risen to 35 in the past week alone. Officials reporting 20 victims in hospital, one of whom died. Local first responders say the city is dealing with a poisoned drug supply, something Ontario's Premier Doug Ford addressed at a news conference earlier today. I personally talked to the mayor myself. He's doing everything he can. Uh, we have Minister Smith on the ground uh, in, in Belleville as well. We're, we're going to try to support them. They need an influx of money right away. Uh, we're going to get that done. But we also have to go uh, after these bad guys. These bad guys that are poisoning, poisoning our towns, our cities, uh, you know, giving them tainted drugs that are killing people. We need to catch them. We need to throw them in jail. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Well, for more, we're now joined by Neil Ellis, the mayor of Belleville, Ontario. And mayor Ellis, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you for having me today. So the Premier, uh, he's obviously heard your concerns. He says the province is going to help. And I know you have two specific asks here. Uh, have you been told anything specifically by the Premier as to how he's going to be helping out your community? Uh, no. And uh, what we've asked uh, is uh, $2 million in capital for a new uh, hub uh, with wraparound services for the unhoused and operating money for the, the hub uh, sustainable operating funds. Uh, the uh, staff from the hub have uh, presented their issues or their operating expenses to the Minister of Health and our MP is working towards a solution there. The $2 million, uh, the city has invested $2 million of our own taxpayers' money in and what I'm asking the, the province to do is match that $2 million to uh, push, uh, push the hub over the finish line and, and finish the renovations uh, to the building to have uh, a proper building that uh, is uh, set out for counselling, is set out for social workers and, uh, and those issues. And really, and for people who are joining the conversation, this is a community addiction hub. You're also asking for money for a detox center. But, you know, those seem to be longer term projects. You're dealing right now with an overdose crisis. How do those two specific asks help you deal with what's in front of you right now? Um, and, and I guess it, uh, in, in the longer term, we're thinking the hub that we, uh, we could get up by the fall and, and running. Uh, in the, the interim, uh, we do need boots on the ground. So if uh, they were able to, to get, uh, you know, instant help here, it would help. But I think, you know, again, uh, this is going to happen in all communities. And these are two, uh, two items that we've been lobbying our MP for uh, for you know for for months and I guess if we can get this brought uh, those two items are going to fix a longer term issue but it's going to uh, settle things down the road now, and again we the, the premier said he is willing to help but you know it was interesting to note that you spoke last week when you declared the state of emergency last week for Belleville you did speak with the prime minister I'm kind of wondering what that conversation was like were you able to get any type of commitment of help from Justin Trudeau 
Uh, again, the, uh, the commitment was uh, we can get you through this. We're looking at uh, policy in general, but asking of what we need. Um, I have a, a call right now that's uh, going to, I'm going to take uh, later today or tomorrow with the uh, Minister of Mental Health and Deputy Minister of Health, uh, uh, SARS, I think her name is, and uh, she has phoned me once before, so they have our ass too, and, and hopefully we can work towards solving them. Does that give you any hope? Are you satisfied with what you're hearing so far, or is it frustrating? I'm satisfied because we made a motion uh, in council in in uh, uh, it would have been in the late uh, late December, I believe, and the motion was uh, to ask the provincial government to take a look at our issues here, and we've never heard back from that motion. So, you know, three months later, we haven't got any uh, pickup on that motion. Now things have hit, and obviously. Uh, I've been contacted by the two highest uh, politicians in, in Ontario, and they both know uh, firsthand, and they've spoken with me. If uh, that's the case, I think that you know they're willing to help, and we need to, to get to that point in resources to, uh, you know, this issue is going to be with us for a long, long time, if not even solvable. So uh, we can't stick our head in the sands. We have to get help and uh, help the people that are, uh, suffering from uh, the three issues. Hey, it's interesting you say you've, you've been dealing with it for a long, long time because as a city, you know, Belleville is certainly known for its waterfront trails, parks, local shops, really more with that. But now you're dealing with this issue that's often more associated with larger cities. Are, are you at all surprised with what you've had to respond to here? Uh, no, every city around us is dealing with it, uh, all rural towns. And uh, I sit on a lot of boards and, and meet with a lot of mayors. And uh, the mayor of Kingston phoned me today. The mayor of Guelph is, is mentioning it out in the press. Uh, mayor Bancroft is, uh, has the issues. Uh, you look at Deserano, Napanese, these are all small towns. Uh, I was out with a councillor today from uh, Prince Edward County, and, and they have the same issues over there. It might be more centered in Belleville and the, in the surrounding area because we have the resources, whether it's a drop in center that we have now um, but we are the mecca or the biggest city around so it's going to probably affect us more but bancroft i believe their numbers are well over 20 and their population would be you know around the two to three thousand uh, people mark and it's affected all small towns so um this has brought a, light, a lot of light i guess to to the issues um but every mayor, this is one of the major issues. And when we go to Roma or when we go to our conferences, uh, there is always talk and seminars on uh, on uh, the unhoused and uh, the opioid crisis and how it's affecting our community. So for government leaders and policymakers, you know, because oftentimes we hear mainly about larger cities, how do you hope your current challenge informs the kind of decisions, the kind of priorities they make when they talk about Canada's illicit drug problem? Well, I think that, that first of all, you've got to get back to a plan of, of housing first, and it's got to get to transitional housing and treatment until we get to the point that we have the resources, and that is human capital and uh, and capital in general, and, and the housing first and work around the issues of mental health and drug addiction. Uh, that is the gold standard, or that is the most solvable to, to, to tackle this issue. And uh, I've met and, and talked to the Canadian uh, Alliance to End Homelessness, Tim Richter, and uh, they are, uh, are preaching the same. 
housing first and move from there. Uh, but when you look at housing first, we do not have the resources to build the the, uh, the houses and to house them. Uh, municipalities get about 9% of every tax dollar, and we provide 67% of the services. So when you look at that proportional, how are we supposed to fix the unhoused mental illness and, and drug addiction? It's, it's totally a provincial issue. Mayor Neil Ellis, uh, thank you for this. Really appreciate you taking the time. Okay, thank you. Take care. Well, time now for a look at what happened in politics today. The federal government is responding to a report on homelessness encampments from Canada's National Housing Advocate. In her review of encampments across the country, Marie-José Ull points to all levels of government for contributing to a human rights crisis. Among her calls to action, Ull wants Ottawa to establish a national encampments response plan by the end of August. We can't uh, assume that we can address the encampments challenges without also addressing the underlying affordable housing challenges. Uh, it's not enough to uh, inject money into uh, local responses unless there's a long-term plan to find sustainable housing options for the people who are living in encampments today. Uh, so the Housing Advocates Report uh, appropriately shines a light on the immense need the communities are facing and the people who are currently uh, unhoused. Uh, and we are working now to develop a, an appropriate response to help deal with the encampments and, and as importantly uh, to find sustainable and durable housing solutions for the people who are living in them today. Ull is also calling on the federal government to end forced evictions of homelessness encampments. Ottawa is pledging more financial relief to rural doctors and nurses. The Liberal government says it will increase student loan forgiveness by up to $60,000 for family doctors and medical residents and $30,000 for nurses and nurse practitioners. The support is meant to attract healthcare workers to underserved and remote communities. Increasing the amount of forgiven, forgivable uh, loan amounts for doctors, nurses, not only makes the dream of many to practice in these incredible careers a reality, but will expand healthcare access to those that need it most. And finally tonight, the federal court says the Prime Minister and his Justice Minister failed Canadians by not filling dozens of judicial vacancies. The case was brought forward by an Ottawa-based human rights law firm, which argued the vacancies put the justice system at risk. In his decision, Justice Henry Brown said Justin Trudeau and his Justice Minister are, quote, treading water and urged them to fill the vacancies as quickly as possible. Can more be done? Yes, more can be done, and I'm working on that. This is my top priority as Minister of Justice. This is the meat and potatoes part of my job, supporting judges of the, of the highest caliber who also reflect the, the diversity in this country. According to the Office of the Commissioner for Federal Judicial Affairs Canada, there were 75 federal judicial vacancies as of the 1st of February. You may remember in the last federal budget, the government announced that it would ask departments to start cutting back expenditures. Now, the big picture was to cut departmental spending by 3% by fiscal 26-27, and it was coupled with a $500 million cutback in this fiscal year. Well, this week we heard from the parliamentary budget officer about those cuts. He says the half billion dollars in savings will not affect government services. But is that good news? Or bad news, if Ottawa's goal is to truly get spending back in line, does the $500 million indicate responsible belt tightening, or is it merely window dressing? 
Well, we're now joined by the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux. Mr. Giroux, thank you for being with us. A pleasure. Now, in your report, uh, you say that most government services will not be affected by this plan to save about half a billion dollars. So, so does that indicate that departments were overspending in the first place? Uh, not necessarily overspending, but by the very nature of government appropriations, departments are allocated spending and they can spend up to that amount. They can never overspend. Um, that's, uh, that's something that deputy ministers and CFOs across town are very careful to never cross that line. So there's always an amount of money that lapses in virtually every single department and agency across town. So every year, as a whole, the government lapses a couple of billion dollars. So what the government did with that $500 million savings exercise, essentially it retook or took away or froze a half a billion of that amount that would have lapsed anyways. And it said you will reduce spending in the areas of professional services and travel, which anyway the government does uh, very frequently uh, lapse money in these areas, what I mean. So it's, it's not that it was a very binding um, expenditure restraint exercise. So not necessarily waste or mismanagement, because there, there would be some accusations of that. Yes, and there's always precautionary buffers that departments have that they can't spend for whatever reason, and they give themselves a buffer, as I mentioned, uh, to deal with unforeseen events, expenditures that were not anticipated uh, to avoid overspending uh, beyond their appropriation. So there's always a buffer. And when you're running a, an operation of over $400 billion, a few billion dollars of buffer is not a lot. And that's uh, the 500 million savings is a reflection of that. So they're just, they just booked that half a billion in advance, not waiting for the end of the fiscal year to see how much did departments last as a whole, but just they took 500 million from the get-go. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not uh, it's not very binding, and it's not a big constraint on uh, departmental spending. Mm -hmm. Now uh, you you referenced it, but when the federal government did it did announce these uh, 500 billion dollars in savings, it said it would do so in part by eliminating professional services, as you referenced. Does that mean outside consultants, which of course has, has figured very largely as a controversy this past year? Yes, it's a, it's a, a good part of it is uh, consultants. So when we say professional services, it's in in large part uh, consultants, which were the subject of uh, debate last year and and before. And the other component is uh, travel services or travel. Uh, I think 150 million of the 500 is travel and the rest is professional services. Okay. But when the government is outsourcing about $20 billion through consultants, uh, reducing it by $350 million is, is not a lot. Yeah, and, and that's what I want to ask because, you know, as they spend, as you say, more than what they're, they're uh, pointing out here as potential savings, would it be cheaper in the long run for the government to, to just hire the expertise on a permanent basis in terms of, or turn to the public servants that it already has rather than go outside of Ottawa to get the help? Well, that's a very good point. In fact, in, in most cases, it is cheaper to get that expertise in-house and have it 
rather than pay the per diem that consultants require. Uh, but the fact that the government needs to use consultants is probably testament to the fact that there are labor shortages in some sectors. For example, in IT, it's apparently very difficult to get IT specialists. So that's in good part why the government needs to use consultants in that sector. In other areas, it's expertise that the government needs only from time to time. When it comes to specialized engineering skills, the government would not be needing that type of these skills on an ongoing basis. So it makes sense to, to contract it out. And in some other cases, uh, it might be just easier to do it that way because of the hiring practices. But in general, if it's services that the government needs on an ongoing basis, it tends to be much cheaper to just hire them as public servants. But there are, as I said, multiple reasons uh, to go outside and use consultants. But at $20 billion per year, it seems to be a lot of consultants that may be more easily done in-house, at least for a fraction uh, or a, a good proportion of these $20 billion. So a big dollar figure that we're talking about. But that's interesting because you also say that $500 million in terms of government savings is a drop in the bucket. Because if this government is trying to prove its ability to manage wisely and to govern within means, that, that makes me wonder, is that $500 million enough to prove the point? Uh, by no means is, would that be sufficient. $500 million on a budget way above $400 billion is really a drop in the bucket, as you said. It's a big drop uh, because it's still $500 million, but it's, uh, it's nothing compared to the rise in government expenditures that we have seen over the years. And if you only look at operating expenditures, that is public servants, consultants, travel expenditures, these have risen significantly over the last couple of years. So uh, half a billion dollars is not a big amount if only you look at the, um, at the operating side of the government. So uh, it, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not an exercise that was very painful or binding or constraining for most departments and agencies. Yves Giroux, I appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Always a pleasure. And that is our program for this Tuesday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching Primetime Politics. We'll be back tomorrow night. But up next, Esther Bejan avec l'Essentiel.